Well, God bless you folks. Always wonderful to be with you. Sing praises to the Lord Most High who's worthy of it. And get our focus back on um, eternal realities and absolutes and the magnificence of our Savior. We're going through the book of Judges, as you know, and uh, it's uh, loaded with good practical application to us. The sad theme in the book, as you know by now, is rebellion on the part of people, restoration on the part of God. Israel, privileged though they are, still squandered it, repeatedly turning away from God to false gods, and God, just as often, manifested his grace and mercy on their behalf by sending to them a kind of a mini-savior or deliverer. They're known as judges. We've seen an array of them and introduced last week one named Samson, who's a perplexing character, for though raised up by God, even from the womb, still we find him to be a very fleshly, uh, carnal kind of a guy. And yet, in conversation before the service began, Steve, oh, where's Steve? Right there. Made this wonderful observation. Samson made the faith honor roll in Judges chapter 11. I mean, in Hebrews chapter 11. So I hope this is encouraging to us because though he is flawed and imperfect, God used him mightily, and that means we who are flawed and imperfect are not excluded from being used by God either. In fact, he has no one else to work with but us imperfect people, and the illustration of it is given throughout the book of Judges. So we're going to look more at it tonight particularly by taking a look to Samuel, uh, to Samson. So we are in uh, Judges chapter 14 tonight. Here's how it begins, verse 1. Then Samson, the then is a time indicator. It implies things preceded it. So whenever you see something like this, uh, you want to pause and Ask yourself the question, what preceded it? Just to save you the trouble, there was a listing of some minor judges in the prior chapter. Then we were introduced to Samson, who, even when he was enwombed, was, um, uh, by God's grace, chosen to be one of Israel's deliverers. And he was to be set apart, even from the womb, for God's glory. And so God instructed uh, Samson's mother, I made the point of pointing out, though we know the name of his father, Manoah, we never were introduced by name to his, his mother, and yet she's one of the giants of our faith. She became privy to the fact that God separated out her enwombed son for his glorious purposes, and therefore he was to live according to something called a Nazarite vow, which we mentioned last week. I'll tell you a little more about it tonight. Basically, it's a vow of special consecration and dedication to the service and glory of Almighty God. So after all that happened, then Samson went down. Well, he went down, folks, not just geographically. You'll see he went down really spiritually as well. He went down to a place called Timnah, Timnah. And this is just a few miles from where he lived. Uh, it was a border town. 
and it marked the border between Israelite territory and Philistine territory. And so you can read here uh, about the Philistines there mentioned. And I told you last time, but I think you know this, the Philistines are not an indigenous people to this land. They came probably from uh, the Greek islands for whatever reason. There's lots of conversation about that. Why they came, they settled along the Mediterranean coast of Israel. They established five major Philistine cities, one of which is Goth. You've heard of Goliath from Goth? That's where he came from. And there are others, Eshkelon and Ekron, and even Gaza, which is uh, in the news today. Hey, could I tell you this? It has nothing to do with the lesson, but I was so excited about it. Um, I have a TV, and it broke. And you can't live without a TV, right? Um, what are you going to do, read the Bible or something? So, so I called up my son, who knows everything, he'll tell you. And so I asked him for some help. And he said, well, it's this and that and the other thing, but we can go to Walmart. Uh, really, the price of TVs has gone way, way down, said he. And so I went with him. This was oh, about nine o'clock at night. He and I went, and sure enough, there was a TV there that was uh, pretty inexpensive, but we needed a little help. So we asked one of the people there for assistance, and I saw here on his label, it said Mohammed. That was his name, Mohammed. Well, that's an interesting name. And um, so I said to him, he was helping us, but I said, Mohammed, where are you from? And he said, Palestine. And you would um, think well of me. I didn't jump at it and say, you mean Israel? No, because that's not the point. Our, our goal is not to win someone to that point of view. It's to win people to the Lord, right? So you don't want to get off on collateral issues, so I didn't jump. I just said, no kidding, where in Palestine? He said, sheepishly, because he was wondering how I would react as an American. Uh, he said, Gaza. He's the first person I ever met from Gaza, right here in Pearland, Texas. Young, wonderful, young person. And I said, I have such respect for you, having coming, come to a new country. And he's learned the language with great proficiency. He still has family in Gaza and a few here. <clears throat> and he was just helping us, knowing what's good and bad about different TVs. And I said, are you going to school? What's your ambition? And he was telling us, uh, very... Uh, resourceful young man, entrepreneurial. He's starting a business and all the rest. And I, I told him, because <clears throat> remember, we're here to represent Christ, right? I didn't tell him I was Jewish or anything. I didn't want to end the friendship too soon. So I told him, Mohammed, I have such respect for your plans for your life here. But do you know there's life to come? And I hope you're prepared for it. In fact, there was one, I think you know his name, who was born in the very land you come from. And his name is Jesus. And he came to suffer and die for our sins so that people like you and me can be forgiven and inherit eternal life. He was all ears. And I thought, how good God is to bring to us people from distant places who we might not otherwise have contact with, and they're in the 
comforts of Walmart right in Pearland, Texas. A Jewish guy from New York got to share the gospel with an Arab Muslim young man. Uh, he's only 23, uh, from Gaza. And I told him uh, what I do and where I am and where our church is and told him it would mean a lot to me if ever you felt inclined to be my guest. And um, He said, and beyond that, if we could be of help to you in any way, because it must be difficult to be in a land, it's, it'll become yours, and, uh, but it's a little foreign to you now, and we have a big church with lots of wonderful people, and we would be pleased to help you in any way, and we exchanged contact information and, and all the rest, and I thought, oh my goodness, Mohammed is from one of these ancient Philistine cities called Gaza, so that's the only connection, folks. I, we should get back to the Bible study, but tell me, would you not be excited? Well, and then I got a good deal on a TV, too. Which, anyway, <clears throat> pray for him, would you please? You can remember the name. It's quite an easy name to remember. Pray for him, if you don't mind. Well, okay, so uh, Samson went down to Timnah. It's a border town, as I said. The Philistines are in that area, um, but uh, the Israelite territory is nearby. Listen. Uh, God wanted the Israelites not to be assimilated by other people groups. That's exactly what was happening. Uh, uh, Samson should not have gone down to Timnah. He put himself in an unusually tempting situation. God calls us to be separate. No, no, I didn't say isolated. We don't get cooties from hanging out with non-believers, but you have to be careful about being influenced. Our job is to impact on them and resist their potential impact on us. And for that, we need one another. We don't need to go down into a Philistine territory. But anyway, that's what he did. And here's what happens. He saw a woman. And uh, this word here, saw, seems to characterize uh, Samson's approach to life, not so much thinking, not getting counsel, not being concerned in any way about God's will and values, a very sensory-oriented person, fleshly in all regard. So he, saw, he does not know this woman. They've had no conversation. She could have a horrific character, but the fact that he didn't even care tells us something about his character. She looked good, and that's all that mattered. He saw a woman. She's one of the daughters of the Philistines, and here's what happens next. He came back from Philistine territory, Timnah, he goes back to his home. He tells his father and mother, I, here we go again, I saw, you see just what his sense is. You have to be real careful. Do you know how many Americans vote merely on the basis of the appearance of the candidate? Terrible. Without even giving much regard to what the candidate believes and stands for? Oh my goodness, I would rather have an uh, unattractive candidate in physical appearance who stands for the right things than for someone who looks like a Hollywood movie star who's a moral reprobate. Who, I mean, it's just crazy. But anyway, he sees a woman in Timnah. She's, again, one of the daughters of the Philistines. And look what he tells his parents. Get her for me <laughs> as a wife. <laughs> 
Get her for me as a wife. What's going on there? Why don't they smack this kid? Well, they can't. I mean, he's an adult now. And the custom of the day was parents would set up marriages. That's the way it was. And so uh, he's going through channels, I suppose, but he's not really submitting to them. He's declared to them what they are to do. Get This is your job, dad and mom. It's not to speak into my life. It's not to counsel me. It's not to remind me of uh, what the Lord would want. I saw her. She looks good to me. I want you to get her for me. And so here's what happens in the next verse, verse 3. Look at this. Then his father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, here we go, he says it again, get her for me, for she looks good. Can you see what, this is a theme. He is making decisions based on his, look, he doesn't care what his uh, parents have to say. He surely doesn't care what the Lord has to say. The text highlights that she comes from the uncircumcised Philistines. What's that about? It means they were not part of the covenant the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made with this special privileged people group called the Israelites. And it was signified by the rite of circumcision. This was to separate them out as being God's covenant people. So they were the circumcised in contrast to the uncircumcised. It wasn't just a physical procedure. It was the sign by which you knew whether you're in or out with regard to God. And so to enter into some kind of romantic relationship, partnership, with the daughter of the uncircumcised Philistines is to really defy God. Now, you know this from the New Testament, don't you? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14. Don't be bound together with unbelievers. Do you know that's not limited to marriage only? Be careful about business partnerships and other such things with people whose value systems are just different than yours. You have a certain biblically informed value system with reference to the use of money. It wouldn't work if you entered into partnership with someone who didn't have the same value. So this text is not just about marriage, but it includes that. Don't be bound with unbelievers. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what Fellowship has light with darkness. Well, that's the New Testament principle, but God mentioned it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, made it real clear. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their daughters, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So here's Samson saying, no, God, no, mom, no, dad. She looks good to me. Get her for me. Look, he had a godly heritage and wasn't acting in a godly way. In a kind of a maybe sick way, this ought to encourage those of us who are parents and grandparents because in spite of your best efforts to raise your kids the best you can and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as Samson's parents did, still he exercised his free will to go astray. I say that to take the heat off of people like you and I if we have wayward kids. 
uh, there's nothing we can do that automatically determines what their choices will be because God has given us all free will. So Samson is exercising his free will in an ungodly direction, though he had godly people. And so in spite of the pleas of his parents, he charges ahead because this woman looks good to him. By the way, in Hebrew, uh, see this phrase, she looks good to me? Uh, it means um, uh, literally, in my eyes, this seems right. <laughs> that's what it means. And you can see him operating in a way that's consistent with the big theme of this book that we mentioned. It's the last verse in the book. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now you see even the called deliverer of Israel simply doing what seems right in his own eyes. And so Judges 14 verse 4 goes on to say, however, his father and mother did not know it was of the Lord. This is very encouraging, folks. As loving parents, I'm sure they were crushed. Oh, my goodness, they say, where have we gone wrong? This is not going to be good. This is not God's way. And uh, uh, their life is turned upside down. But they didn't know sovereign God was at work, even through the impending sin of their son. This doesn't mean that God in any way condones Samson's sin or ours, it just means that even through our sin, God will accomplish his purpose. He is sovereign. Now, here's the deal. His will will be done either with us or in spite of us, but his will will be done. And so the parents only know the immediacy of the circumstances. They don't have the big picture wherein a sovereign God seated on the throne can use all things for his glory. So you see, they didn't know it was from the Lord. Why? God was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Look, the Israelites had lost sight of the fact that they are supposed to be in subjection to God now they were in subjection to the Philistines, and it came no longer to bother them. They got so comfortable with that, they weren't even asking God for help. They weren't asking to be delivered anymore. Like many Christians today, uh, we can fit so in with the prevailing culture. We don't want to be liberated from it. We're comfortable with it. So uh, God is distressed by this because he called ancient Israel, he calls us, to be distinguished from the general population and to be set apart. That's what the word sanctified or holy means, to be set apart unto him. And if we don't see how important it is, God will not be dissuaded, nonetheless, from separating his people out. And therefore, God was looking for an opportunity to cause contention, rift, and upheaval between the Philistines and the Israelites. The Israelites had succeeded in fitting in, and God said, I don't want you to fit in at that cost. You become just like the Philistines. And so God is going to use this very sinful inclination by Samson to affect his redemptive plan of preserving, down to this very day, a people set apart for his own glory. Now, Samson's parents don't 
know this yet. See, at this time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel, and God wanted Israel to be ruled by him. So here's what happens now in verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah. See, he met the girl. He comes back a few miles to his home. He tells his parents, I want this woman. Don't talk to me. I like her. She looks good. So the text says he went back down to Timnah this time. Look, with his father and mother, I ask you, is that a good thing? I don't know. We could debate. They seem to have caved in. They seem to have uh, compromised their convictions. They first state this is no good. Isn't there someone also part of the covenant who you could fall in love with? What's up? And he's demanding and he's screaming, get her for me. She looks good to me. I just wonder if they compromise their convictions in order to keep the peace and in order to make their son happy. Whatever it is, could I tell you something? As parents or grandparents, don't do it. If you love your kids or grandkids, stick to your God-given convictions. Don't try uh, to appease them or make them happy if it costs compromise. I've shared this before. It's kind of a foolish illustration. One of my sons, when he was just young, uh, got an allowance. $2 a week is what we would give him. He saw something on TV that he wanted, and you can get it for 2 bucks. It was a toy. We were in the car. He wanted me to go to Kmart when they had Do they still have Kmarts? Well, they're gone. Okay, so, so, so we, we, he wanted to go to Kmart because he saw this uh, toy on TV and he was enamored with it. And I told him, well, I, I don't think you sh that's a good uh, purchase because the way they depict it on TV, I assure you, is not the way it really is. We actually went into the store. I saw the toy. You know, it's a cheap, junky thing. I said, I don't, I don't think it's... It's going to be good. It, it, I don't think you'll like it. He said, well, Dad, it's my money. Yeah, my, my money. Where did he get it from? <laughs> but okay. So I said, all right. So he chose to buy it. He wanted to open it in the store. I said, no, you can't do it till we get out. We went in the car. I helped him to assemble it. And we barely got out of the parking lot. The thing fell apart into all of its pieces, and my son started to cry. I was so tempted to gather up the pieces. I had the receipt, and I had my New York attitude intact. And so I thought, I'm going to go into Kmart and see the manager. Not only will I get the $2 back, I think he'll pay me to get out of the store. That's what I'm going to do. How could you make little kids cry like this by this terrible misrepresentation of the quality of a product? I had my whole thing ready to go. And so... Uh, but then something told me, don't do it, because uh, you'll make your son temporarily feel better, but you'll do him a disservice. You'll give him the impression that he can make all the bad decisions in life he wants, and there'll always be someone to rescue him from it. No, no, no. If you really love him, let him experience the consequences of his insubordination, of his unwillingness to take the counsel of his dad. Let him Let him see the consequences thereof. And that's, that's what I did. So uh, he was upset. He was uh, hurt and angry at me, but I, I didn't want to give him a false view uh, of, of life. You can make choices, but then you have to live with the consequences. So this is the point. Folks, folks, I don't know if they did the wrong thing or not. I'm just suspecting they caved in. Don't do it. Find out what the Bible says. Stick to it. 
And don't compromise just in order to make your kids or grandkids like you more. Well, they go down and they come as far as the vineyards. Now, that's interesting. So they're going back to Timnah. As you'll see in a little while, it looks like the parents take one route to Timnah, but Samson takes a detour into the vineyards. Now, this is not a good thing because as part of the Nazarite vow, you're not supposed to ingest not only not wine, but any grape products. It's, it's your dedication to the Lord. And so why would someone who took a Nazarite vow want to subject himself to this uh, temptation by getting off the main road and walking through a vineyard? So this is not, I think, the best idea. And I think God agreed. And therefore, look at this. A young lion came roaring toward him. I think sovereign God allowed that to happen to give Samson a chance to see, what are you doing, knucklehead? Stay on the main road. Stay out of this vineyard. You're going to subject yourself to a situation you cannot say no to. Don't go into the vineyard. Well, he doesn't really listen, as you'll see. So this happens. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. You know what this tells me? The Spirit of the Lord. First of all, learn something about the Spirit. Do you know he did not live inside people in days of old permanently? That came about in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came, you remember, in dramatic fashion, from that point on, when one uh, confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord and invites him into your life, his Spirit comes to indwell us uh, and, and never, to, never to leave us. But in the Old Testament, before uh, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit always existed. How do I know that? Well, the Holy Spirit is God. God always pre-existed. So the Holy Spirit had influence in people's lives, but he came into them or upon them for specific purposes and for a temporary period of time in the Old Testament. That's why the New Covenant is so much better. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in this case, Samson is affected by the Spirit of the Lord who came upon him mightily. You know, in children's Sunday school material, when Samson is depicted, he looks like Hercules, you know, muscles and all that. I really think that's not a biblically correct depiction. I think, I don't want to go too far, I think he looked like a little Jewish guy like me. I'm trying to tell you. Uh, the might had nothing to do with muscles. The might had to do with the spirit of the Lord coming upon him. Isn't that true of you and I? We're all weak in many respects, but when empowered by God's Spirit, as with Samson, we can do amazing and mighty deeds. So the Spirit comes upon him, which shows me that, and look what he did. He tore him, he tore him, the lion. He tore him. Now soon I want to show you, just because the Holy Spirit is using you to accomplish something great, that doesn't mean you're in right relationship with God. 
I mean, I watch other preachers, you know, all the time on TV and so on. And, uh, and God, God uses uh, many in a magnificent way, even though many are theologically unsound and are goofballs. Um, the a Greek term. So, so just because the Holy Spirit is doing certain things through you, doesn't mean you're in right fellowship with God. I assure you, Samson was not at this time. But anyway, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and empowers him so that he tears the line as one tears a young goat. So that's an interesting concept. I, I never thought about tearing a young, a young goat. I suppose that's what they did in that day. Anyway, he had nothing in his hand, the text says, so you can't attribute this to a, a knife, a sword, or barehandedly. He tore a roaring lion in two, but he didn't tell his father or mother. Look at this. He didn't, he, he, he didn't tell them. You know why? He's violating his Nazarite vow with which his mother raised him even uh, she was intent on this before he was even birthed because part of the Nazarite vow, remember I told you you can't drink uh, alcoholic stuff, but the other thing is you can't touch a, a dead thing because then you would become ceremonially defiled. It would exclude you from, from worship. So he, he tears apart the lion, renders it dead, and, and he gets its blood and deadness all over his hands. And that's why he didn't, want to, he didn't want to tell mom and dad. He knew he, was doing, he knew he was doing the wrong thing. And so here's what happens next. This is interesting, is it not? The Bible is, is really something. It pulls no punches. It really gives you an honest glimpse at human nature. It's quite a story. So anyway, he went down. He talked to the woman. He talked to the woman. So it looks like, you know, uh, Samson made his way back to his home, then went back to the woman uh, again, and there he's making conversation with her, the implication being. He had no conversation with her before, remember. <coughs> he just sees her. He likes what he sees, and he uh, commands his parents to fetch her as his wife. But now he goes down to have some conversation, but we're back to this. And he says, and she, it says she looked good. Once again, they're in the midst of conversation, but I don't think he's, think he's listening to a word she has to say. I think he's occupied with other things at the time. I remember when I was younger, I had two older sisters. They're both deceased now. And uh, one of them, uh, Shelly, my sister, was popular. And so a guy, she had a date with this guy, and when she came back, my parents said to her, how did it go? And she started to cry, and she said, it didn't go good at all. I don't understand why he can't respect me for my brains. That's what she, what she said, and I said the wrong thing. I said, well, maybe if you spent, before the date, two hours in the library instead of two hours in front of the mirror, maybe he'd respect you for your brains, but that was not a good thing. My, my father was not... But that's kind of, I don't think Samson is respecting this gal for whatever she had to say. He's still focused on the way she looks, and he just can't get his mind off, off of that. So 
here's what, here's what happened. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and, and a swarm of bees and honey were in the body of the lion. Now, I know that sounds uh, a, a little weird, but it, it really isn't. Remember, that part of the world gets very dry and arid, and uh, the bees are looking for a moist uh, base of operations in which to build a hive. So the carcass of a recently killed animal is still moist. and uh, It's a, actually a good spot for bees, and insects, and other things like that to, to settle in. So this is really not, not as weird as, as it appears. And so here, here's what happens next. He scrapes the honey into his hands, boom, violating his Nazarite vow again. You're not supposed to make contact with the dead animal. He doesn't care. And he goes on eating. If you can imagine, the honey is in his hand, and while he's walking, he's just having a good time. Remember, Samson, the deliverer of Israel, is very, very fleshly. We attribute great strength to him, but really was quite weak. Strength is not a function of your physical prowess, is it? Strength is a function of the extent to which you can restrain passions. That's a strong person. Uh, Samson was quite weak. He could not restrain his passions for women. He could not restrain his passions for food. And so this is what's going on. So he comes to his father and mother. He gave some to them. I have a feeling they would not have partaken of it if they knew where it came from, but he didn't tell them. You see here, look, look. but he did not tell them. Once again, he's living this terrible secret life. He doesn't tell his parents. He doesn't tell them where he got the honey, that he scraped it, you know, out of the body of the, of the lion. So, so here's what happens. Then his father went down to the woman, and Samson made a feast. See this feast right there? That word? It's a particular Hebrew word. It means drinking party. That's what it was. So the wine was flowing. Once again, a Nazarite had no business being in that environment. I assure you, he wasn't passive about things. I guarantee he participated and thus violated his Nazarite vow again. He made a feast there for the young men customarily do this. It wasn't an unusual thing. Well, when they saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. Uh, so who brought the 30 companions? The Philistines did. This is very interesting. That's why you got to slow down when you read scripture. You think about this. So Samson goes down into Philistine territory preparing for his wedding. Where are the friends of the bridegroom? This would be typical for, of a wedding in that day. He, the bridegroom, Samson brings no one with him. In fact, friends of the bridegroom had to be supplied by the Philistines who provided, as it says, 30 companions to be with him. It's kind of embarrassing. Here comes the bridegroom, but he's a loner. There's nobody there to kind of help him out and support him and celebrate with him. And you know what we're finding out? Sadly, um, Samson was intensely isolated. He was a loner. Don't do that to yourself. We're not made for it. Now, look, we're made for communion with Almighty God, and Almighty God made us, designed us for relationship with one another. Doesn't mean you have to be best friends with everyone, but have some friends, will you? For accountability, for support. 
Uh, Samson had none. Unlike the previous judges, they would ask, they would inspire the Israelites to go to battle with them. We don't get any of that with reference to Samson. He does everything alone. He's not close to his parents. He's not close to his God. He's not close to, he's not close to people. And so this is kind of a sad thing. And it tells me that we as believers need to grow, not just spiritually, but relationally as well. Uh, do you remember this verse? It's one of the only verses we have that describes the development of the Lord Jesus. It's in Luke chapter 52. Look what it says. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom. That means intellectual growth. And stature. That means physical growth. And in favor with God. That means spiritual growth, and don't miss this, and men. And that means relational, social growth. And the Lord wants us to follow suit and develop in all these areas. Samson was undeveloped. Do you know, it's a very sad thing. I hope uh, as we're praying for whoever the Lord is preparing to be our next pastor, you are praying for one who has balance in all four of these areas. Some leaders are out of balance in one or the other. Some leaders are intensely isolated. They go deep with no one. They have no meaningful relationships. They express no emotion even to their so-called closest of associates. I hope you're praying that the next leader of this church has a measure of balance in all of these areas. Well, Samson did not. So here's what happens next. Samson said to them, let me propound a riddle. Isn't that weird? It's kind of a wedding thing. It would last about seven days, big party, and, and this guy proposes a riddle, but it's not unusual. Because of the duration of the celebration, people, this was the custom, they would dance, they would talk, they would eat, they would drink, and they would play games, including word games, like riddles. So really, it wasn't unusual at all. Here's the riddle. Uh, first, he says, if you tell it to me, if you can figure it out, within the seven days of the feast... If you find it out, I'll give you 30 linen wraps. A linen wrap was kind of a rectangular garment with a hole in the middle. You would slip it over your head, kind of an undergarment. Linen was expensive. He says, I'll tell you the riddle. Figure it out. I'll give you 30 rather expensive pieces of linen. And not only that, 30 changes of cloths. See this word, word here? Clothes, not cloths. Clothes, it's a special word. It means festive garments or the kinds of stuff you would use when you're going out on the town. Expensive clothing. So you see Samson here has a, a disproportionate fleshly connection to women, to wine, uh, to food, and even to clothes. This one chosen to be separated unto God is leading with his fleshly nature entirely at this particular time. And so it goes on. He says to them, uh, if, if you're unable to tell me, you'll give me 30 wraps and 30 changes of clothes. They say, okay, tell us the riddle. So verse 14, he says to them, here's the riddle. 
out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. So you can see the riddle is based on his experience with the lion, right? Out of the eater, the lion, came something to eat. The honey was there and, and something sweet. Well, they couldn't tell the riddle. Three days, they're racking their brains. They couldn't figure it out. So here's what they did, verse 15. They, uh, it says on the fourth day, they go to Samson's wife. They say, entice your husband so that he tells us the riddle. And this is what they do to provide her with a little motivation. Or we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. That's what they say. So these are good guys. And she caves under the pressure. And so you get this in verse 16. Samson's wife wept. Well, she didn't just weep. She wept before him. Most men can't handle it. He couldn't. She weeps before him. Not only that, she says, you hate me. That's what she says. You don't love me. I heard this recently. And you have propounded a, a riddle to the sons of my people. You haven't told it to me. Look what he said. He said to her, I haven't told it to my father or mother. Should I tell you? Folks, there's not one thing right about that marriage. Not one thing. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, you know this. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. When you get married, the primary human relationship is no longer the one with your parents. It's the one with your spouse. He's got it all wrong. I wouldn't even tell my parents. Why should I tell you? So this is not good. Well, anyway, verse 17, she keeps crying for seven days. And on the seventh day, he tells her. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I need to tell you this. On the seventh day of the wedding feast in that culture, that's when the relationship, on the night of the seventh day, that's when it's consummated. Gee, I wonder if that had something to do with uh, Samson coming clean about the riddle, if you get my drift. This dude would be sleeping on the couch. So on this time, he explains the riddle. She pressed him hard, the text says. And, and so we get this in verse 18. Uh, the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, you see, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He said to them, if you had not plowed with my, oh my goodness, so guys, do not try this at home. I don't think this is a good approach. He refers to his wife as a heifer. That's not really... I think he's making reference perhaps to her stubborn spirit or who knows what, but this is not the way to do it. If you didn't... In other words, if you didn't bypass me and make use of my heifer, uh, <laughs> you would not even have found out my... My riddle. Look, Samson, the deliverer of Israel, he does not have it together, this guy. So he says this, and then verse 19, look, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily. For what purpose? He went down to Ashkelon. So that's one of those five uh, Philistine cities I told you about. It's on the coast, Mediterranean coast. He went down to Ashkelon. It's about 23 miles away from where he was. What did he do there? He killed 30 of them. But this is the result of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon him. 
I think Samson's motive was pure revenge, and also he didn't want to use his money to satisfy the obligation. He didn't go out and buy uh, these 30 things. He, he took their spoil, and, and he gave the changes of clothes uh, to those who told He's a creep at this point. So he kills 30 Philistines just to get their clothes with which he could satisfy his commitment to these these other Philistine guys. So I think his motive is entirely unacceptable and fleshly, and yet the Spirit of God came upon him to do it because while Samson is simply concerned about his selfish, narcissistic interests, God, the God of redemption, is going to affect war between the Philistines and Israel because he needs to extricate Israel from the grasp of the Philistines. They were intermarrying. They were becoming like the Philistines. They were not living like the holy, separated people they were called to live by. I'm telling you, my fellow Christians, whether it's voluntary, Terry or not, God will pull us out of the crowd in order to get special glory from those for whom Jesus died. And so this is what happens here. This is just the beginning of some real problem with the Philistines and the Israelites. And so the status quo which God people settled for is about to be disrupted. We won't see it this week, but you will see it, Lord willing, Next week. So uh, this is kind of what happens. Now look at this. He gives them the change of the clothes. And his anger, remember, a strong man is not a guy who can do a lot of push-ups. A strong man who could, is one who can control his anger, it seems to me. That's the man to aspire to be like. Well, Samson couldn't do it. His anger burned, and so he went up to his father's house. You know what this means? Didn't consummate the marriage. You know, he just took his body and went home for crying out loud. He's just mad about the whole thing. And so, as a result, it gets worse. Look at this. Last verse for tonight. But Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his friend. One of the 30 guys supplied by the Philistines to buddy up with the bridegroom, though he had no relationship with them, is that probably the best man is given by this Philistine gal's dad to, to have relations with her and be her husband. Because the dad is probably offended for the offense Samson imposed upon his daughter. What do you mean? You're not going to consummate the relationship. Do you know what an insult that would have been in that day and even today? He said, well, I'll show you. If you abandon my daughter, I'll just find someone else for her. And so this is what happens. So what can we conclude from, from all this? Well, uh, in spite of Samson's intensive efforts to indulge his flesh, he found very little satisfaction from so doing. Can you see it? Folks, uh, wine, women, riddles, Temporary gratification didn't work. We could learn from Samson. He, in an unbridled way, indulged the flesh, and what did he have to show for it? Dysfunction in the family, distance from the God who loved him and redeemed him. 
a horrific marital partnership, not even consummated physically. When God tells us to do things his way instead of our own, it's not to cramp our style. It's because Father knows best. He knows how how relationships work. He knows how our bodies work. He knows the needs which are hidden in the inner recesses of our heart, and he knows better how to meet them. It's a terrible, unpleasant story, but we should derive this application from it. Please ask God to assist you, as I do, in helping us to bridle our fleshly interests. Please ask God to help us to submit to his clearly stated biblical will because God's way is really best. And then the second thing with which we'll close is this. We really need a savior better than Samson. That theme emerges in every chapter of this book as we've studied the whole array of Israel's judges, Samson being the last We find out they all have a shelf life. They die, and when they die, people go astray. And when they're alive, they manifest their sinfulness, their fleshly nature, and all of their human imperfections and flaws. Oh, to have a Savior who no longer is subject to death, who lives to make intercession for us, and who even is willing to live in our hearts if we invite him. This whole book... um, Uh, obligates us, if we were in this age, to look forward to a coming perfect, flawless Savior, judge, deliverer, who's not subject to unbridled fleshly interests, but who instead said to the Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Well, you know we have that Savior, that deliverer. His name is the Lord Jesus And in this world, which can overwhelm us with its hopelessness, run to the God of hope, Jesus, the resurrected Savior, who removed the sting of death, who lives forevermore, seated at the right hand of the Father, who in due season will come again, uh, no longer humble mounted on a donkey, but as victorious Lion of Judah. And until he returns And we see him face to face, run to Jesus. He's the perfect deliverer. Not one of the judges of Israel could hold a candle to. I doubt we're so foolish as to put our undue hopes in anybody who may be in the Oval Office at any time. I hope we're respectful of the process and vote and all the rest. But please do not have undue hopes placed in any fleshly agent because the best of men is but a man at best. Anybody in government is flawed and imperfect just like everybody in here, but the Savior who wishes to save the lost is perfect. He has not had the experience ever of sinning That's the one we're invited to know personally, to run to, to talk to, to bow down before, and to worship. Samson, in a glaring way, tells me, I'm not good enough. Look for the one who is to come. 
Look for the perfect one who, though he be preexistent, transcendent deity, condescended, became enfleshed, came to your space-time dimension called planet Earth in order to give you an access to the throne of grace you would not otherwise have. Jesus designed us to have communion with him. He gave us a mind to think about him. He gave us a heart to love him. And he gave us a will to obey him. And as we exercise ourselves in all manner of things today, we ought to be exercised in using those unique faculties to cause us to draw closer to the only one who will never disappoint us. What a savior we have in the Lord Jesus. Do you know him personally? Uh, if not, what a privilege it would be if you would allow us to spend a few moments with you in the Connection Center in the next few moments so we could talk to you about these things. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything. Thank you for showing us what we're made of. We're the ones who rebel repeatedly. Thank you for revealing to us by contrast, your character, you're the one who repeatedly and graciously stands ready to restore and to rescue and to redeem. Thank you, oh God, that all of our disappointments and cynicism with the world's rulers, really, they should not overwhelm us because we could turn our eyes upon Jesus, looking full in your wonderful face and find that the things of earth as a result grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Thank you for saving us, of course, from the penalty of sin, but also from pessimism and cynicism and hopelessness, even in the face of all that we are confronted with in this day. Thank you, O Son of God, for rescuing us from darkness and hopelessness, Thank you for coming again that day as victorious Lion of Judah. We look forward to it. And until that happens, help us to learn from one such as Samson. We see the outcome of his unbridled fleshly appetites. Nothing good came of it. Help us to be not like Samson, but as ones who bow to your will, not under compulsion, but out of wisdom, because you, Father, truly do know what's best. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.